The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll speak with the legendary film critic for the late lamented Village Voice, Jay Hoberman. We'll talk about Aaron Sorkin's new film playing now on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Hoberman asked the question, is it great courtroom drama or boomer porn? But first, Monday we had good news on a COVID vaccine. Moderna has announced their vaccine is 94.5% effective and it's a lot easier to ship and store than the Pfizer vaccine we heard about last week. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works in epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, and he's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, how good is this news from Moderna? So we've had word from two companies now, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, that they have vaccines that are in excess of 90% effective, which is based on interim analyses of, of their trials by statisticians. It bodes well. You know, it'd be better than saying we looked at the data and there was nothing there and we have to go back to the drawing board. But we don't have a lot more knowledge of what what's in those data sets, what the trials look like, what the long-term effects are. You know, there's more unanswered questions than there are answered ones. And so, Optimistic, hopeful, but, you know, trust and verify, as Reagan used to say. Let's find out what's going on. It's good news in a dark time, and so I'm not going to throw cold water on it. But again, like, please understand these are preliminary results. They're little more than press releases by these companies, and only the data will tell us if these vaccines are safe and efficacious um, over the long term. And Moderna says theirs is a lot easier to ship and store than the Johnson & Johnson one. Yeah, but the, both of these vaccines require cold chains. The Johnson Johnson one, I think they need super cold storage, which, you know, some people are like, it's just dry ice. Well, it is dry ice if you have access to it, but it's probably a little bit more than that. You know, remember, these vaccines need to be given out to hundreds of millions of people, potentially billions of people, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about access to these new vaccines, we're not just talking about where you live and where I live, but, you know, Central Africa and Southeast Asia and other places around the world. Um, some which have well-developed scientific infrastructure and research and clinical infrastructure can do this, some that, it, that do not and are going to have to be supplied with vaccines no matter what the level of infrastructure there is on the ground. Now let's talk about the bad news, what's happening right now. One Report, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced on Sunday that she was ordering the shutdown of some businesses and halting in-person learning at high schools and colleges in the state for three weeks. 
to combat a rapid increase in coronavirus cases there. Then Dr. Scott Atlas, President Trump's coronavirus advisor, wrote on Twitter Sunday night, quote, the only way this stops is if people rise up. You get what you accept, close quote. wonder what your comment is on Scott Atlas. So a couple of things. One is we are in the worst phase of the pandemic. Um, if you look at any of the curves uh, in your local newspapers or in the New York Times that I look at every morning, we are far in excess of the number of cases we had this time in March. And we are likely to see a wave of hospitalizations and death over the next few weeks. They're going to make March look like a picnic. The beginning of the year, early spring, the, the epidemic was concentrated in New York and some other big cities. Now it's a giant coast-to-coast mess, right? If you look at the, the maps, the upper plains and, and Midwest are just a splotch of red. It's a, it's a region on fire with SARS-CoV-2 everywhere. The question is, what do we do about it now? You know, we need to do mask mandates, but more than that, give masks out to anybody who needs it. We have to get people to stay home, but many people can't stay home because it's an economic necessity that they go to work. Um, and so we have far few resources to deal with the sort of conflagration that's happening now. Um, and Governors are struggling to figure out what to do. You know, blunt force lockdowns are this, in, in a weird sense, the sign of failure because we can't do anything more surgical or tactical because we just simply don't have the resources. Scott Atlas's comment, it doesn't dignify a response. It's irresponsible. It's just quackery. The man is a charlatan. It just, there's, he doesn't deserve any credibility or, or credence as a public health figure just because he's an MD after his name. Um, doesn't mean anything in, in my book. Um, he's shown himself to have absolute disregard for the evidence and for human life. He's become an ideologue uh, of the worst kind, an anti-science zealot, uh, and and I, I can't even imagine what motivates the man. Can you give us any estimate of how many people are likely to die of the virus before the vaccine is available? Well, if I could predict the future, I'd be in a more lucrative profession, but, <laughs> you know, the cases are going up. We're, you know, we're over a quarter of a million cases, uh, deaths already. It's conceivable that by the time January rolls around, we'll have 300 to f- between somewhere between 300 and 400,000 deaths. Um, remember when the vaccine rolls out, um, it's going to go to healthcare workers first. Then it's going to go to, you know, next to people who we consider extremely vulnerable. So the, the, the elderly. And so the, the tide of deaths is not going to abate magically in January or the day after we have an uh, FDA approval of a vaccine. It's gonna take time to, to vaccinate people and, and, and confer protection to people. And so it, this is gonna be a long haul throughout the rest of 2021, probably. America has never attempted to vaccinate so many people on such short notice, especially with a deadly virus. And we have a lot of polling evidence of resistance from skeptics and anti-vaxxers, the poll showed a big drop in willingness to get the vaccine between May and September from 72% of people said they would definitely or probably get the vaccine when it was available back in May. In September, that was down to 50%. And and there's much more resistance among black people. Only 32% of African-Americans in the Pew poll said they, they would get the vaccine. What do you make of all of this? Well, a couple of things. One is remember 50% of Americans get vaccinated for flu every year. So our vaccination rates for adults is not great, right? Um, and again, it's among communities of color, vaccination rates are less. 
Childhood vaccines, although we see outbreaks of uh, measles and other diseases regularly in the U.S. because there are pockets of people who don't want to take vaccines, we have a pretty good record on childhood vaccinations in the United States, notwithstanding these sort of sporadic outbreaks in different places. The vaccines got embroiled in a, the politics of the final months of the election, and along with masks, and you know we're going to have a long road to hoe in terms of figuring out how to regain the public's trust about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, I think, you know, it's going to take leadership. You know, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and get vaccinated. Other people in public health should do it, show it's safe, show it's important to do. I probably won't be first in line because I'm not a healthcare worker and I'm not super elderly. So um, I think that we're going to have to have leadership from the White House and from other political and, and public health figures to get people to, to do this and to have support from within communities themselves to, to teach each other and to counsel each other about the importance of protecting each other through vaccination. I, I read that uh, 60% of the n- national pharmacy chains have agreed to provide vaccinations on site. This is places like Walgreens, CVS, and also Walmart and Costco. That seems very promising to me. Yeah. I mean, commercial infrastructure, you know, there's a, everybody's like within a half an hour drive of a Walmart in the United States. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I saw, I've seen figures to the, so like, if you add all these commercial pharmacies and big chain stores that have the potential to, to vaccinate, we cover a large part of the American landscape, including rural areas. You know, the question is somebody has to coordinate all those deliveries. Somebody needs to make sure that the vaccines get to where they have to go. They have to develop a communications plan. You know, some of these vaccines are two doses. So they have to, you know, if John or Greg gets a vaccine one day, we have to figure out where you're going to get your vaccine the next day. You know, none of us have seen the sort of distribution rollout plan. Uh, it's basically hidden in the files of Operation Warp Speed. The Biden incoming administration can't get access to it. And so it's a big black box. Like we're just crossing our fingers and praying that, you know, there's no funny business in these contracts and procurement and logistics contracts that are going to make things difficult when everybody sees what's in it in January. I read that in my home state of Minnesota, they've had a program where the flu vaccine has been distributed to people in cars um, by mask nurses in traffic vests who reach into cars to give passengers flu shots uh, and that they consider this a test run for a COVID vaccine. What do you think of that? It's great. Bring the bring the healthcare to the people, right? It's like, you know, I'm a big fan of like, don't make patients come to you, go to the patients, you know. And if nurses are out uh, and healthcare workers are out, drive up flu vaccination clinics where they can just jab you in the arm and you can drive away, all, all the better. Faster, most, more efficient, more convenient is what we need to do for people to get access to vaccines. If it's like you need to go at certain hours to a certain single place in your community, it's not going to work. That's why, you know, all these chain pharmacies and, and big box stores are, 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 uh, might be a blessing in terms of the availability and accessibility of vaccines. And now I want to talk about the the, the financing of, of the research a little bit. I understand Moderna got a billion dollars, that's B is in baby billion, from the government to fund research and another billion and a half in advance orders for the vaccine, which will be free, paid for by the government. And yet the Moderna CEO, a man named Stefan Bansell, told investors that the company, quote, retains worldwide rights to develop and commercialize the vaccine and that Moderna will, quote, realize all the profits from our COVID-19 vaccine. We should have a unique cash position at the end of 2021, 
close quote, obviously this will be in the billions of dollars, but American taxpayers invested a billion dollars. Why does Moderna get all the profits? It's, it's a big question that everybody who works on access to medicines was asking way before the COVID-19 epidemic. You know, you and I as taxpayers pay uh, money every year to the IRS, which goes out to the National Institutes of Health, which goes out to individual researchers and goes out to companies to support basic biomedical research in the United States. So Johnson & Johnson is like, we didn't get taken any government money. Oh, wait a second. You know, all the basic research that went into developing your vaccine was not paid for out of your own pocket. So whether it's Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, the federal government has paid an underwritten uh, a huge amount of research in vaccines and on COVID. And these, and as you said, for Moderna, it's, it's gotten direct cash transfers from the federal government. The point is, is that the federal government can exercise its rights to, to what is called government patent use. If, if, if any of these companies balked about giving away these vaccines for free, we could walk in and say, guess what? We have some intellectual property rights over these and we can pay you a reasonable royalty uh, and, and produce the vaccine through our own contracts and give it out to people around the world. This has been going on for years and years and years. You know, we pay more and more and more for drugs that um, we put into our bodies. And often it's, at the, uh, it's subsidized twice. One out of your pocket when you when you have to buy a drug or you have to pay for a vaccine, and the first this first time actually when you're um, paying your taxes on a, on a yearly basis. Do you remember what Jonas Salk said when he developed the polio vaccine? Can you patent the sun? I think that's what Jonas Salk said about the polio vaccine. You know, the point is, is like this is a huge issue every waking day for people who are, you know, insulin for instance. The price of insulin, insulin, the makers of insulin never patented it. And companies have, in cartel-like fashion, raised the price of insulin over the past few years that people are dying for lack of insulin. So even way before COVID, companies were manipulating intellectual property in order to pursue profits at the expense of patients' lives. You said a few minutes ago that the federal COVID programs and masking became a political issue during the campaign. They remain a political issue now. Trump tweeted after the Moderna announcement, quote, for those great historians, please remember that these great discoveries, which will end the China plague, all took place on my watch, exclamation point, close quote. I was pleased that he wants, that he cares what historians think, even though he puts historians in quotation marks, but he's, he's, he's not giving up on this. I mean, who knows what's going on? You know, they haven't had a coronavirus task force meeting in weeks. Trump hasn't shown up to the coronavirus task force in five months. Meanwhile, you know, we started this conversation talking about what's happening in the Midwest uh, and the sort of raging conflagration of, of COVID-19 in the upper Midwest and Plain states. Um, and so it's all well and good to sort of tweet out and claiming credit for the work of scientists and, and private companies around the U.S. Yes, with government tax-funded dollars. But, you know, maybe he'd get out of bed put the cell phone down and uh, come out and, and do some work to make sure that we, that we don't have thousands and thousands of more deaths over the course of the next few weeks. You wrote at thenation.com last week that right now you said Mitch McConnell is even deadlier than a virus. Please explain. So, you know, Donald Trump clearly has some personality issues, right? <laughs> yes. he, he clearly doesn't care about anybody but himself. Mitch McConnell has been a, a politician for a, a large portion of his adult life. He is now facing the test of his career. It's absolutely certain that we're going to need a massive, massive relief package um, as soon as possible. Before the, before the inauguration would be best, but the day after 
you know, would be okay. This is going to be multi-trillion dollars. Remember, we had, you know, a three to three trillion dollar package earlier in the year. The epidemic is far worse now. The economic devastation is going to be far worse. Mitch McConnell says, oh, we don't need such a big ticket bill now. We can do some targeted relief. He didn't talk to an economist. He didn't talk to an epidemiologist. He talked to no one about this. This is about who's winning in Washington, D.C. And he sees his job as making Joe Biden the one-term president, like he said about President Obama, which is gruesome in, in, in ordinary times. But he is really standing in the way of a, a, a massive relief package that we need to scale up public health interventions to provide social and economic support to ordinary Americans. He is public enemy, public health enemy number one, and he doesn't care. And his actions alone will kill more people than the virus did left to its own devices. And what do you think of what Biden has done so far on the virus? He's saying all the right things, right? He's, he's gathered a group of you know, prominent physicians and others around him to advise him. Um, he's spoken about it in an economic and social context as well. His pandemic playbook is sound. He's made it the centerpiece of his early transition activities. And so all things are looking good. But it goes back to Mitch McConnell. It's like, you know, on January 20th, is he going to be able to do what he needs to do? Or is Mitch McConnell going to be Dr. No and say, well, you know, you may think you need $5 trillion or $3 trillion, but I'll, I'll give you a billion or $20 billion. I'll give you a drop in the bucket, which will hobble our relief efforts. And, you know, you wanted to talk about, you know, when we'll get out of this and when we'll see some relief from all of this. You know, Mitch McConnell is the break. He is the one who will stop our relief efforts uh, dead in its tracks and, and let the death toll mount, the economic devastation mount, because it doesn't matter what the plans say on paper from the, emerging, the uh, incoming Biden administration. It's about what the Congress will appropriate and allow the, the, the administration to do. Last but not least, what more do you want to see about the Moderna vaccine research or, or the other uh, test reports before you're willing to give us the purely green light and assure us that the future is going to be brighter? With all drug and vaccine approval, the data goes before the FDA. The FDA reviews it. Then they have an external advisory committee that reviews the data. And they'll make an adjudication about whether the statistical analyses and, and the claims that Moderna and Johnson and Johnson made um, up till now hold hold water. But what's more important, you know, in the context of the conversation we had about public's faith in vaccines, is that we should make that data available to other scientists to to, to scrutinize and re review as well. Um, this is something again. This is not new. Many of us have called for much more transparency in clinical trials and putting uh, data into repositories so that researchers can make requests to see the data and to analyze it separately. Because who knows what you'll find in a secondary analysis that might have been overlooked by an initial, an initial investigator. So when the, when the vaccine research group at the uh, FDA, their external advisors, uh, come in with a vote and, and come out with a finding, we'll know whether it should get a green light or not. That group of people is a, a set of world-renowned vaccine researchers, statisticians, and other kinds of experts that will tell us the truth about what they see in the data and will, will really make a case for its approval or make a case against it when they make the recommendation to the FDA. And when can we expect that FDA recommendation? Well, it depends. The companies keep talking about going forward with an emergency use authorization. That's different than a full approval, which... Um, had a whole set of other regulatory requirements. FDA Commissioner Hahn has said that uh, if an EUA submission comes in under his watch, he will convene the, the ordinary panel, the traditional panel, to, to scrutinize the results. But, you know, we're in a little bit of gray territory because emergency use authorizations were supposed to be these last resort regulatory 
mechanisms to sort of get things out there when you need something there tomorrow, when it's a biological attack or something like that. We've now used it for hydroxychloroquine, for convalescent plasma, two duds. And uh, we, we've got to be very careful about how we think about regulating drugs and biologics for, for pandemics because we can't cut corners just because we can do it through regulatory authority. Greg Gonsalves, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. One programming note, you can join the nation's first ever festival taking place virtually on November 18th through 21st. Four days of wide-ranging conversations, briefing sessions, and interviews coming in the wake of the most critical election of our lives. It features Bernie Sanders, Naomi Klein, Michael Bennett, Rick Steves, Alicia Garza, and many more. The Nation Festival, November 18th to 21st. Tickets are on sale now at thenation.com slash nationfestival. That's thenation.com slash nationfestival, one word. We're still thinking about the Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, an uplifting story about 60s protest in the face of government repression, starring Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman and the great Shakespearean actor Mark Rylance as left-wing attorney William Kunstler. The film was released by Netflix in time for the election, and it's still going strong. Rotten Tomatoes lists 260 reviews, 90% of which are positive. For comment, we turn to Jay Hoberman. He's legendary as the film critic for the late lamented Village Voice. He's written some of my favorite books on movies, most recently Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. We talked about it here. Now he teaches in the graduate film program at Columbia. Jim Hoberman, welcome back. Great to be here. Well, you wrote about the Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, for the L.A. Review of Books. I'm especially interested in the film because... I wrote a book about the trial. It's called Conspiracy in the Streets. But when it comes to a film about historical events, the most boring thing a historian can say is it's not accurate. And nevertheless, people want to know, you know, about Trial of the Chicago 7. Did that really happen? Did that character really do that? So we have to consider... How do we evaluate a film about historical events that uses the names of real people, but is obviously not a documentary? I mean, we have to ask not, is it accurate, but is it any good? And luckily for us, you are not a historian. You are a film critic, so you can give us an answer. Well, I can't give you a simple answer because I, on the one hand, I'm of an age to have enjoyed this this movie in a kind of nostalgic way. It was uh, uh, entertaining to see it on the screen. But on the other hand, I'm also of, of an age to be deeply suspicious of the way that the movie was framed. I mean, the, the, the conclusions that, that Sorkin drew from this, from this event and the way he decided to present it. Uh, I also had a problem with um, uh, some of the performances but uh, uh, that may be because I had some sense of who these people 
were. But on the other hand, I would say that Sorkin had had some great uh, dialogue to uh, to work with. And this is his forte. I mean, courtroom drama is his forte. So there was there was a lot for him there. So I don't know what kind of answer this this, this is. I mean, my review of it definitely would have been been mixed. Um, I know some people who just considered it boomer porn, and I, I can <laughs> see that 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 point of view. I think that it's more serious than that. I mean, um, I, I don't think that that uh, Sorkin was pandering, maybe pandering to himself and his own his own view of of uh, where America is at and how influential these people were, you know, uh, I mean, uh, we might as well cut right to the chase and talk about the, the more egregious things in the film, John, which uh, you are, are well aware of. Those more egregious things that our friends have complained about so bitterly are a part of what you call the frame, frame that Sorkin, Sorkin uh, uses, not here, but in all of his work. Um, you know, Sorkin has certain principles, you might call them, certain goals, a confrontation between two men, it's almost always men, who argue and give eloquent speeches. And as a result of this, people come to understand each other better. And also in Sorkin land, they come to understand themselves better. They learn that their opponents are not all bad and that they too have flaws of perhaps they, that they were not aware of before these events transpired. So we have, I mean, the center here is that conflict between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, which in Sorkin's world is the reformer versus the revolutionary. We also have the ambivalence of the prosecutor with his careerism versus his principles of what is right and what is wrong. We have Dave Dellinger, the pacifist, who has to uh, confront his own violent impulses, unpleasant as they may be to his self-conception. But then in the end, in the end, it's a happy ending. Everybody stands up and cheers for the good guys. And the good guys are the protesters. The bad guys are the Nixon prosecutors. And that's the way Sorkin works in everything that he does. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is that he he cannot really work with what seems to me and not just to me. I think this was was actually clear at the time. And it also is evident in other films that have treated the trial. It's it's the um, I don't know if we want to call it the uh, the crucifixion of Bobby Seale and the passion of Fred Hampton, which is something that in a way he makes very evident in in the movie because you see that that Hampton is kind of functioning as Seals in court lawyer. Let me just insert here for people who don't remember this. Fred Hampton was the head of the Chicago Panthers, a very appealing and charismatic person in real life and was uh, murdered by the police in his bed during the trial, in the course of the trial. Yes. And in the movie, you see that he is in the uh, audience. Is that, does the trial have an audience? He's in the yeah. audience and he's he's communicating with Bobby Seale, who doesn't have a lawyer because they wouldn't wait until his lawyer got there and he doesn't want to be represented by Kunstler and he, the judge is not really letting him represent himself, which precipitates this, this, this unbelievable scene where he's bound and, and, and shackled in the, in the trial. And, and the thing is that that is something which, if memory serves, and it doesn't always, 
people knew about largely by hearsay. There, I don't know, remember were there were there actual drawings that were done. Yeah, there are courtroom drawings, and it was it was headlines in the news that sh- that because Seal had been quote disruptive, he was being bound and gagged in the courtroom, and and it, in fact, uh, and this was denounced by the New York Times editorial page and places like that as a terrible outrage to justice. Okay, so it wasn't just the underground press that was right. But the the, the point that that I would want to make is that what is evident to anybody watching this movie, except possibly to Aaron Sorkin, is that Fred Hampton was murdered because of his participation in the trial. I mean, this was the lesson that that the FBI or whoever set it up, you know, the Justice Department. I mean, I, I don't you know, there probably were numerous agencies responsible for for murdering Hampton. But this was the message. They got to kill this guy. And and that to me it says more about the nature of of the of the trial than uh, than anything else. I mean, I personally was got a kick out of Abby Hoffman. Think the thought that he was a, a a brilliant guy, very funny, very playful, much more so than he appears in the movie. In my opinion, that Sasha Baron Cohen doesn't really get at, you know, uh, uh, Abby's impish qualities. But that is that is essentially, I think, a sideshow. If you're talking about, you know, what, what was going on uh, in America, because Abby was like, well, he certainly wasn't the first to realize this, but he he, he understood that that the politics in the United States has has tremendous elements of uh, show business, and he was able to uh, to run with that and take some of his co-defendants along with him, although not not all of them, but. That is really secondary to what transpired in that in that courtroom and then outside the courtroom in Chicago. Abby is, as played by Sasha Baron Cohen, kind of the star uh, of this movie. And the central drama between Abby and Tom is resolved by the happy ending. You called it in the L.A. Review books, mind-clouding, feel-good nonsense. <laughs> Wonderful phrase. Here's my reading of it. Tom Hayden in the movie, the the character Tom Hayden in quotes, is a kind of mainstream liberal who thinks it's not a political trial. They keep arguing about this. And he says, you know, voting is everything. If you don't win elections, you know, you're nothing. Uh, the judge at the end of the trial tells Tom Hayden he could go far in the system and that if he makes a closing statement that is remorseful and not political, his sentencing will be more favorable. And there's a long period where Tom is trying, grappling, what's he going to do? And the finale is that Tom defies the judge and reads the names of Americans killed in Vietnam, which we've referred to throughout the movie as something that's, that's in the works. And everybody cheers. The whole courtroom erupts in cheering. And we at home can hardly resist cheering because Tom Hayden has finally learned to stand up to injustice. And he learned this from Abby Hoffman. <laughs> no, you're laughing because it's, of course, a ridiculous thing to say about Tom Hayden. He was on trial, <laughs> charged with conspiracy to riot in violation of federal law. But, but it is Sorkin's happy ending that the liberal learns the value of protest. And, you know, the people who like this film, including Rennie Davis, say, you know, that's, an, that's a good message to bring to the American people in these trying times. Well, of course, what he's doing is he's he's you know inscribing Tom Hayden's future career as a as a successful politician in 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 California. Not to mention 
the husband of a uh, of a movie star back into into the trial. But what I would want to suggest to people who are who are impressed by or interested, you know, by the movie, want to know more about it, is to um, get the, your version of the transcript, not the one which just came out, which is linked to the movie, which has Aaron Sorkin's introduction, which is quite revealing in that he claims that he never didn't know what this the, the Chicago Seven were about until Steven Spielberg asked him to make a movie. So that that's revealing in itself. Yes. But I I think in 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 your book, which was reissued, has an afterword by Tom Hayden, which is incredibly it, it's not just intelligent and lucid, but he's able to locate this trial in American history, which is something that 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 the movie most certainly does not do. And it's 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 worth it, I think, uh, for that, for that alone. I mean you know, he was not a lightweight. <laughs> he was a serious guy. He and Abby had different strategies, but I mean, but they were, you know, they were, they, they, they were, they were both smart and his, his, his sense of history is, is acute. Abby on the, on the other hand, really understood television and, you know, what could be done with the, with the media. And you suggest in the LA review of books, that the shocking part of your review is that you suggest that the new Abby Hoffman, we have one today the great distractor and champion disruptor. And who is the Abby Hoffman of our day? Yeah, it's Donald Donald Trump, or at least he's, yes, he's a descendant. Just as, as you see in the movie, and it's emphasized in the movie, you know, that, 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 that Abby refuses to play the courtroom game. He changes the rules. He does not respect authority in the courtroom. And of course, it's very entertaining. Students, you know, anti-war students, you know, leftists like myself, loved him for that, loved him for that. But, you know, we see now what happens when somebody is in a position of, of tremendous power and, and authority, you know, decides not to play by the rules either uh, in a courtroom or, or in any other space governed by the law. And how uh, deeply unfunny and, in fact, uh, appalling and dangerous that is. You know, there are many things that many things that the left used, which were uh, which were quite brilliant. Uh, I mean, I, I tell you, another example is when uh, Abby and Jerry Rubin disrupted the New York Stock Exchange by dumping dollar bills down on the trading floor, precipitating this <laughs> incredible like rubbing for money. I mean, this was like a genius thing. And then, you know, you go ahead 40, 40 years and you have these clowns. Uh, posing as uh, as a pimp and a prostitute and and recording it and and destroying acorn the same you know a, a, you know using a prank you know uh, in a in a political way with with much more serious i mean that's not something that made you think the way that that the stock market event did that's something that that made people's thinking shut down nevertheless this film is a huge hit 260 reviews 90% positive. How do you explain that? Well, that is that is fascinating. I mean, um, of, of course, I'd like to know, you know, it's too bad they don't have these things demographically you know, bro broken down. I, I'm, I'm not sure why it would be so, so popular. The only thing I can think of is that there is some, you know, appeal in seeing this kind of disruption occurring for a good cause rather than for the the horrible you know like a quasi you know like or would be you know dictatorship that that we're uh, you know we, we've lived through jay hoberman 
He wrote about Aaron Sorkin's trial of the Chicago 7 for the LA Review of Books. Jim, thanks for talking with us today. Always my pleasure. One correction. Last week, Mike Davis identified Valverde County, Texas, as being home to the city of McAllen. In fact, McAllen is in Hidalgo County. We thank a listener for bringing this to our attention. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.